Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we've all come to this moment having worshipped you and perhaps bringing with us a number of cares, many things on our minds and hearts. And we would ask that you would grant us for the next few moments to leave those things aside and to be able to worship you by receiving good things from your word, things that would encourage us, things that would challenge us, things that would remind us of your great sovereign power and love for us. That we would be moved to greater affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and greater faithfulness to him until he returns. Would you please help us in that way? We ask these things in his strong and kind name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We continue to look at this passage that extends from verse 1 to verse 12. Last time we focused on the first four verses, so we'll finish that passage this morning. For the sake of context, I'd like to read all, all 12 verses again with you this morning. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand together and we'll read 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 12 again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You may be seated. 
There are certainly times in life when it would be nice to know the future so that we might find comfort in the present, present and, and be able to make some better decisions in the present. I, I, I would think that most people in the country and certainly many of us in this room would find it helpful to know what's going to happen on November the 3rd, right? The election is coming up and many people have, have said that this might be the most important election in our lifetime. I, I would guess that people have been saying that since 1776. However, we feel that pressure, do we not? It would be nice to know what's going to happen on November 3rd, just to have some comfort right now, perhaps to be able to make some decisions right now. What we have in 2 Thessalonians 2 is Paul bringing us into the future, telling us some things that are going to happen in the future, and what those future things have to say about our present, so that we can have comfort in the present and make some wise decisions in the present. His, his intent is to move us to live differently now by telling us what's going to happen in the future. He wants us to be aware of the present and future deceptive activity of the enemy and so be on our guard and stand in the truth. I'm going to say that again. Paul wants us to be aware of the present and future deceptive activity of the enemy and so be on our guard and stand in the truth. So this is the second part of a two-part message covering verses 1 through 12. Just to re- recap where we, where we were last time, we saw that Paul is giving us principles that can guide us when dealing with deception no matter the time or the subject matter. And he does that by addressing a particular instance of deception perpetrated in the church at Thessalonica in the first century. The church there had been deceived into believing that the day of the Lord had already come. And that would be disastrous to anyone's faith. And we we looked at a couple of broad principles just to review. First of all, we saw that deception seeks to undermine our hope. That is always the enemy's the enemy's aim. He wants to undermine our hope when he deceives us. Undermine our hope so that we will stop worshiping the one true God. We saw secondly that deception is a major tool of the enemy in these last days. This this time that stretches from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. So now as we move on, beginning in verse 5, we see that deception is restrained for a time. Deception is restrained for a time. Look with me beginning at verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So first of all, we have in verses 5 and 6 a couple of soft rebukes. In verse 5, don't, don't you remember that I already told you these things? You, you already know this. You already know what? Well, we saw last time, Paul taught us that the Lord will not return and His people will not be gathered to Him until two things happen. First, the great apostasy must take place and the man of lawlessness must, must be revealed. So Paul is saying to them, look, you already know this because I already taught you this. Those of us with Bibles, and most of us have them in our hands this morning, those of us with Bibles ought never be caught unaware by deception. We have the whole truth in our hands in the form of this thing that we call a Bible. That's verse 5. 
And in verse 6 he writes, you know what's restraining the man of lawlessness now. You know this, implying you're kind of acting like you didn't know this, but you do, or at least you should. Now a couple of questions tend to gnaw at those of us interested in all things eschatological. I want to I look at those very quickly. First of all, who is this restrainer, this one restraining the man of lawlessness? Before I look at that question, let me just remind you something that I said in the first message and something that I tend to say anytime we study a passage that pertains to eschatology, these, these things pertaining to the end. And that is that there are many different views on these things pertaining to the end, eschatology. And we can disagree on these things as long as we agree on one thing, and that is that Jesus is returning. So on some of the particulars that I'm going to present to you this morning, you may disagree with those things. And I say to you, that is perfectly fine. We can continue to worship with one another, and I love you, and hopefully you'll continue to love me. But I have to have a view, and I have to present one this morning as we look at this passage And I assure you that the view that I'm presenting to you is the one that I find to be most faithful to Scripture. So, who is this restrainer? Paul doesn't say explicitly in this passage who it is. Apparently, he had told the the Thessalonians who it is. He doesn't say who it is in this passage. He just says that they know who it is. And there, there are many proposals out there for who it might be. The most plausible ones are that it is the Holy Spirit or that it is the gospel ministry of the church or that it is an angel. I could take the time to go over the merits of each. We could get into the, the, the gender of Greek participles, but there are probably only three or four of us that would still be awake at the end of that. I prefer to just say that ultimately, it is God who is behind this restrainer. If it was crucial for us to know the identity of the agent that God is using to restrain the man of lawlessness, the Holy Spirit would have moved Paul to put it in this text. But the end of of this passage is going to show that even though the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, ultimately God's plan is being fulfilled by the coming of the lawless one. And if if the coming of the lawless one is fulfilling God's, God's plan, then so also must the restraining of that lawless one be by God's plan. So no matter what the agent God is using, it is ultimately God restraining that lawless one until God's perfect time. Second question, who is the man of lawlessness? This, this figure whom we have equated with the Antichrist. I think trying to answer that question is even less profitable because Paul says here that he is being restrained so that he may be revealed in his time. If you and I could figure out who the restrainer is while he's being restrained so that he can be revealed in his time, then the restrainer must not be very good at his job. We can be sure that for the true believer, though, when the man of lawlessness is revealed, it will be painfully obvious who he is. According to verse 4, he's going to try to eradicate worship of the one true God. He's going to stand against what believers know to be true. That's Paul's point in verse 5. I already told you this. You know this. And this will be even clearer when we get down to verses 13 through 17 next week, Lord willing. When Paul writes, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold fast to the truth. Listen, if you hold fast to the truth, you're going to be okay. 
The man of lawlessness does not need to wear a name tag in order for you to be safe. You just need to know the truth, love the truth, and stand in it. This master of deception is being restrained, he writes. So, what explains the fact that the Thessalonians have been deceived already? Well, verse 7 explains it to us. In verse 7, Paul writes, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Paul likes this word mystery, uses it throughout his letters. But typically, he applies that word to the mystery of Christ which he uses to to describe the plan of the ages to bring Christ as the Savior of the world. We find that phrase, the mystery of Christ, in Ephesians 3, Colossians 4. In Colossians 2, we, we read this phrase, God's mystery, which is Christ. The general idea is that in ages past, God was at work setting the stage for the coming of Jesus. He was preparing people to believe in Jesus. Now what we find, if we pay close attention to how the devil works throughout time, is that Satan is a counterfeiter. We see that tendency in the case of the Antichrist as as Satan in his mystery of lawlessness. So we've got the mystery of Christ or the mystery of godliness. In the mystery of lawlessness... Satan is doing something similar to what God was doing in the mystery of Christ. He is preparing people for the coming of the Antichrist. He's setting the stage for this coming of the man of lawlessness. And one of the ways he's been doing this, according to the Apostle John, is by sending little Antichrists into the world since the beginning of the church to soften up the church, to infiltrate the church. That's 1 John 2.18 if you're taking notes. Galatians 2 mentions false brothers sent in to spy out our liberty so that they may bring us into slavery. 1 John 4.3 reads, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The enemy is working on the church in a capacity even now that is somewhat restrained. But he's getting the church to turn from what the church knows to be true, even in this age, though it is somewhat restrained, he's working even now to get the church to turn from what it knows to be true, just as happened in the case of the Thessalonians. So you see, apparently the 21st century church is not the first generation of the church to have found it easy to be distracted from what they know to be true whenever affliction comes. It has been that way since the first century. Affliction either drives us to the Lord or can be used by the enemy to distract us from what we know to be true. I have begun to make it a weekly habit to ask myself the question, what is the enemy doing right now in my life? What's the enemy doing? How is he working to distract me? What what lies is he tempting me to believe? What truths is He tempting me to ignore or abandon? And I found that every time I ask myself those questions, I I am able to to come up with something that He's doing. He never rests. Never misses an opportunity. Paul is clear here. The restrainer is restraining, and yet the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Look at the rest of verse 7. 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. There's going to come a time when the one restraining stops restraining, which we'll talk about a bit more here in a moment. But this concept of a restrained and yet active lawlessness is one reason that I don't find Revelation 20 to be problematic for the understanding of this passage that I proposed last time. As I showed last time for Paul, the day of the Lord is the day on which three things happen. Jesus comes back, he calls his saints to himself, and he judges the wicked. All of those things happen at the same time. If you're familiar with eschatology, you'll know a lot of the phrases that that I'm about to use. I formerly held to a pre-tribulation rapture, the belief that Jesus will come and then there will be a seven-year tribulation. He'll come, he'll remove his church from the earth. Then, in the absence of the church, there will be a seven-year tribulation before Jesus comes again and sets up his earthly kingdom. I held to that view for years and years until about 15 years ago when I was reading 2 Thessalonians 2 very carefully. And I realized, wait, there can't be a pre-tribulation rapture. There can't be a removal of the church before this very difficult season of tribulation, and it can't come before the judgment of the wicked because it's as plain as the nose on my face, which is very plain, it's as plain as the nose on my face that verse 1, we're not gathered to the Lord, and the Lord does not return unless, verse 3, the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And as, as I continue to read and study, I realize that this passage and 2 Thessalonians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 also rule out what's been called a mid-tribulation rapture and a literal 1,000-year reign after the return of Christ and before the judgment of the wicked. Rather, all of, all of these things happen at the same time. Christ comes, He gathers His saints to Himself, and He judges the wicked. Paul says so about seven times in these two letters. But like many of you, I, I was still left thinking, but what, what then should, should I make of Revelation 20? Some of you are very familiar with Revelation 20. Those of you who aren't, let me explain to you what is depicted in Revelation 20. That chapter depicts the devil being restrained for 1,000 years so that he might not deceive the nations. And during that time, Christ reigns with the saints brought to life. At the end of that 1,000 years... Satan is released from his prison and comes out to deceive the nations and lead them in a rebellion which is put down by fire from heaven. So I thought about this. Eventually it made perfect sense to me and 2 Thessalonians 2 actually helped me. Now before before I show you that, let me tell you very briefly how I understand Revelation as a whole. And I assure you that this is not an innovation of mine. I'm not the only person to read Revelation this way. In fact, this view is not new at all. It's as old as the church. Actually, the pre-tribulation rapture view, that, that is the relatively new innovation. Anyway, Revelation should not be read like, like one long timeline, but rather it tells the story, the one story, of, of, of the church from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. It tells it several times from what we might think of as numerous camera angles. We, I know we have, we have a number of sports fans here, right? And what we like about watching sports these days is the numerous camera angles. 
Because in instant replay, you can see one play from many different angles. And so one camera angle will show one thing, and one set of players, a different angle will show the same play, but from a different angle and perhaps showing different players. Well, that's what's happening in Revelation. And you might wonder, well, why, why would we ever read a book of the Bible that way? I'm glad you asked. Because we find the Bible doing that numerous times. Repeating itself or, or, or showing us things in recapitulation is, is the word that some theologians would use. I want to give you just a few examples of this. The first two chapters of the Bible do this. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about the creation story. And then the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, takes us back to a different camera angle and shows us an accentuated look at the creation of man and woman, even though chapter 1 also already told us about the creation of the man and the woman. We find another example in Exodus 14 and 15. We find another example in Judges 4 and 5. Our own resident Old Testament scholar, Michael Chernikon, is in the room here with us this morning. He wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on just such a reading of the book of Job. I would encourage you to read Job thinking this through. Uh, Michael argues that the first two chapters of Job are not to be understood as chronologically before the poetic section of the book, but rather the poetic section of the book is to be read as concurrent with the first two chapters, but they are something of an internal look at those first two chapters showing what Job was enduring during those first two chapters. And that would be consistent with what we see in these other parts of Scripture where the Bible will show us an event and show us a different camera angle of it. That is what's happening in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation shows us, guess how many times? If you you know Revelation, what's an important number in the book of Revelation? You could probably guess how many different camera angles there are. There's seven I want to give you those, those sections, and you can read Revelation and see if you don't find in these sections commonalities, repeated themes, accentuating different aspects of the age between Christ's first and second comings. I think if you do that, you'll see how these different sections can be overlaid over one another, showing one period of time, the, the age between Christ's first and second coming. Those sections, if you want to write these down and just read Revelation in your own time and see if, if this possibly makes sense to you, I'm going to, I'm going to give you those sections right now. It's chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 7, chapters 8 through 11, chapters 12 through 14, chapters 15 through 16, chapters 17 through 19. Chapters 20 through 22. 1 through 3, 4 through 7, 8 through 11, 12 through 14, 15 through 16, 17 through 19, 20 through 22. So what did I conclude regarding how to understand the devil being restrained in Revelation 2? I concluded what many others have, which is that Revelation 20 depicts the age from the first coming of Christ to the second showing a camera angle that accentuates the demise of the devil, and it parallels what we've read in 2 Thessalonians 2. Rather than proposing a problem for 2 Thessalonians 2, you can actually superimpose it over 2 Thessalonians 2 like a shoe over a shoe print. 
in Revelation, Revelation 20, the devil is bound particularly in his ability to deceive. And a major objection to this is, how can this depict the current age? I mean, obviously the devil is active right now, right? I mean, we see it all over the world. But isn't that what 2 Thessalonians 2 has taught us about the man of lawlessness? He's he's being restrained right now, and yet the mystery of lawlessness is active. I would say that so also the devil right now is being restrained, and yet he's active. Now turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Book of Jude. There's only one chapter in Jude, so we'll look at verse 6. Jude verse 6 tells us that this exact truth is true of the demons, all the demons. Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling place, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the, day of, until the judgment of the great day. So, who are these angels? They are the demons who rebelled against God. It's very clear here. Which ones of those demons? The. The. The angels who did this. So, all of the demons who rebelled against God. And, and what... what is true of these demons until, until this certain time. He, God, has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. So they are in chains as we speak, according to Jude. Until what time? Again, he very clearly tells us, until the judgment of the great day. So Jude, which is in the Bible, right? we're looking at our Bibles, right? Jude tells us that the demons... All of them are in chains right now. He's using language almost identical to the language of the devil in Revelation 20. They are currently restrained until the end. And yet Paul writes this about these demons in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, we do not wrestle, and he's talking present tense, we do not wrestle, present tense, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, all of that language refers to demonic spirits, principalities, powers, authorities, rulers. Likewise, we could go and look at at, at Acts chapter 8 and 19 about unclean or evil spirits, and those are demons. They're active. So Jude says they're restrained, and yet the New Testament tells us they're active. They are restrained and yet active. Why would we find it impossible then for the devil to be both restrained and yet active? Just like the man of lawlessness is restrained, and yet the spirit of lawlessness is active. Now some of us may be scratching our head, how how can the enemy be both restrained and yet active at the same time. I would suggest to you that we might think of Job 1 and 2 as a paradigm for understanding this. If you're familiar with the book of Job, we know there that the, the enemy couldn't do anything without the Lord's permission, right? But when Yahweh gave him a line that he couldn't cross... Did the devil show any self-control? Did he hold him back a little bit away from himself back a little bit away from the line? No, he went right up to the line. He did every bit as much as God said he could. 
Now, it's, it, it is as if the, the, the devil and the angels and the mystery of lawlessness, they are on a leash right now, a much shorter leash than they will, than they will be just before the end. But they take their activity right up to the very end of that leash. And I would suggest that that's precisely what we should believe that the devil that's precisely why we should believe that the devil is restrained right now. Because self-control is not the devil's wheelhouse. I mean, ask Job. The, the, the devil isn't holding himself back from revealing the man of lawlessness right this second. God is. When the devil is released, that's the first thing he's going to do. He's going to send the man of lawlessness out to deceive the nations. Deception is restrained but active even now. A major problem in in the church of all ages is Christians living like the danger of deception is only a future reality. But there's an irony here in this second chapter. Deception is being restrained in some measure in this age, but that doesn't mean there's no deception at all. The Thessalonians in the first century, they have already been deceived. And people around us are being deceived all the time. I mean... There are people in this room, we, we have watched people walk away from the faith, have we not? Some of us can put names on people. We, we can name people who have been deceived and walked away. The danger is now. And we must be on our guard. Now here's something additional to consider. That deception is being restrained now. Indicates that things are only going to get worse. So I would ask you to consider this. At what point will we begin to prepare ourselves for that day of more devastating deception? Will we wait until then? It'll be too late. Now is the time to prayerfully dive into the Word. Now is the time to train our powers of discernment to recognize and counter the deception of the evil one. False teaching whether it's in the church or coming at us from the subtle drift of our culture, it seeks to lure us away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Which leads us to our second step this morning. It's our fourth overall. but That is this. Deception will temporarily be unrestrained before the end. Deception will be temporarily unrestrained before the end. Look with me at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now verse 8, I'm skipping over. For just a second, I'm going to come back to it shortly, okay? The revelation of the man of lawlessness, it coincides with Satan being released from the pit in Revelation 20. The devil is given free reign in a sense, and the man of lawlessness becomes his tool of deception. Now let me read to you from Revelation 20. This is Revelation 20 verse 7. It tells us that Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations. Now look again at 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Of the man of lawlessness, Paul writes... The coming of the man of lawlessness is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And who is he after? Verse 10. 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. I mentioned last time that because of the word apostasia in verse 3, and the way that word is used in the New Testament, I view the rebellion of verse 3 and the object of this deception to be nominal believers, those who have professed faith but who have not truly followed Jesus. They are the low-hanging fruit of the visible church in the last days. They are the seed that fell on the rocky ground. And what did Jesus say of them in Matthew 13, 21? He said that when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, they immediately fall away. Now what exactly is that pressure going to look like? It's it's difficult to say, but if the restrainer is, is holding this at bay right now, then when the restrainer removes that restraint, we should expect that time to be unbelievably trying. The man of lawlessness by the power of Satan will bring heat upon the church. He will do many false signs and wonders. And the nominal believers, that is those who say, I follow Christ, but who have not really surrendered to Christ, they will fold like a cheap tent under that pressure. They will follow the man of lawlessness. They will worship him instead of the one true God. And they will join his rebellion. They will join themselves to the world that hates the church. They will be flipped. And ultimately, why is that? Again, the end of verse 10. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. They refused to love it. They've heard it and heard it and heard it, but they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Hearing the truth does not save you. Hearing the truth and loving the truth saves you. What did they love as they were professing Christ all those years. What did they love? They loved the trappings of the church, perhaps. They, they loved the lingo. They loved the songs, maybe. Maybe they loved the culture of the church. They loved the camaraderie of, of coming to a certain place with their friends each Sunday. They loved the business connections. They loved the sense of belonging. But they didn't love the church. They, they, they never, they, they didn't, They never loved the truth. They never definitively embraced the truth of the gospel. They never said of themselves, I, I, I am a sinner separated from God. And because of my rebellious acts that spring from my rebellious heart, I have no hope on judgment day that that I will be saved from the wrath of God. I am undone. Please, Jesus, save me. Only your life and death and resurrection can save me from the wrath to come. So I surrender all to you. Save me, please. Jesus, my, my Lord, my King, my God, please save me. They, they did not love the truth. They did not confess the truth of themselves. And so they refused to be saved. Verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see? The coming of the lawless one to lead many astray is according to the act of Satan, activity of Satan, but ultimately 
It is by the plan of God as a judgment upon those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is very similar to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and following. They rejected the truth, and so as a judgment, before the judgment, God gives them over to greater deception. Listen, that should terrify you if you're putting off following Christ this morning. That should terrify you. If you're saying, if you're saying in your heart, I've heard the truth and, and I like being at church, but I also love being my own God. And I'm not really ready to surrender my life and all that I am to Jesus in faith. If that is you this morning, 2 Thessalonians 2 should terrify you. It should drive sleep from your eyes. Do you understand that you're playing with fire? Eternal fire. You are not promised another month. You're not promised another day. Today is the day of salvation. And I beg you, please, please follow Jesus today. This is the revealed truth of God Almighty. And it says that if you put Him off, He may give you over to deception to believe what is false because you did not Love the truth, but you had, you had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, those of us who have believed, should verse 11 trouble us from a theological perspective? That this good God whom we love, that this good God sends a strong delusion. You know, Titus chapter 1 calls God the unlying God. He can't lie. Should it trouble us that, that God sends a delusion? Well, I'm running out of time this morning. I would say, if, if that troubles you, just read your Bible. Read it from cover to cover. This kind of thing is found from cover to cover. God uses agents, both good and evil, to accomplish His good plan. And He is able to do so without in any way tainting Himself with evil. Now, our God is so powerful, He is so wise, He is so sovereign that everything the devil does to thwart His plan only serves to accomplish His plan. It is in the book of Genesis. And this is a glorious thing. It's in the book of Genesis. Satan, go ahead and try to throw roadblocks in the way of my promises. You are only going to facilitate my promises. It's in the book of Job. Satan, go ahead and do your thing. You're only going to do my thing. It's in the book of Acts. Satan, go ahead and try to stop my gospel. You're only going to spread my gospel. Satan, go ahead and send your man of lawlessness to deceive the people. In the end, your man of lawlessness is my instrument of of judgment. The Scriptures show Satan to be both the enemy and the unwitting servant of Almighty God. Here again, what will protect you against the strong delusion during that time of unrestrained deception? What will protect you? That's the important question this morning. Love the truth and so be saved. Believe the gospel and surrender to Jesus Christ. He is your refuge on that day. Crucial, crucial that you grab that. Now finally, 
One last thing, very quickly. Deception will be eradicated. It will be eradicated at the coming of Christ. Deception will be eradicated at the coming of Christ. Let's peek back up at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Chapter 1 acknowledged that persecution is already happening. The man of lawlessness is going to escalate these things. He's going to escalate deception and persecution. But what is going to happen when Jesus arrives on the scene? Let's look back at what chapter 1 told us about this. Chapter 1, verse 6, about halfway through the verse, tells us that God will repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You know, much of that is that language is virtually identical to what we just read in, in 2.8, in 2.11 and 12. It's just that in 2.8, He singles out the man of lawlessness. Jesus coming back, this is our great hope. On, on that day, Jesus will put an end to all affliction. He'll put an end to all persecution. He'll put an end to all deception. He will deal with the man of lawlessness. He'll deal with the devil. And what is it that we're going to be left with then? We have, we have seen at the end of 2 Thessalonians 1, this wonderful thing of our being glorified in Christ and His being glorified in us. Let me give you some, something to chew on from Revelation 21. It's Revelation 21, beginning in verse 4. This is after He has dealt with our enemies. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Speaking of the great city, John writes in verse 27, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Death, pain, sorrow, everything unpleasant, gone forevermore. Only joy in the presence of the Godhead forevermore. That's what we have to look forward to on the other side of deception. Deception, even now, is restrained and yet active. For a short time, it will be unrestrained. And then the Lord Jesus Christ will return and eradicate it forever and we will spend eternity with Him. Until then, what should be our course? Strive to know the truth, love the truth, stand in the truth. Let's pray.
Father, it's a sobering thought to think about this church in Thessalonica. So much to commend them. Such a strong church that Paul wrote to in his first letter. And yet so quickly deceived as he wrote his second letter such a short time later. Father, if they could be deceived, we know that we could be deceived as well. Perhaps we are being deceived even now. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to take these words to heart and believe that though deception, the enemy is being restrained, that does not mean that he is completely inactive. And that now is the time to embrace the truth Fill our minds and hearts with the truth. Love the truth. Follow Christ with everything that is in us so that we might be aware of deception when it comes now and be fully prepared for unrestrained deception in the future. Pray, Father, that you would fit us for glory in this way. Pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus.